I spent the last few days downtown Chicago. A few of you have joined me, actually. Uh, if you live in this city, <laughs> you're aware that there's a, quite a large music festival happening downtown Chicago called Lollapalooza. And I've spent the last few days um, outside the front gates of Lollapalooza having spiritual conversations with the attendees. And I gotta tell you, the conversations have been amazing. I probably have spoken to well over 30, probably close to 40 folks, talking to them about Jesus, asking what their religious background is, answering a lot of questions they have about Christianity, setting the record straight for many of them who really have never heard the gospel before. I believe we saw a number of people come to, to brand new faith in Jesus through those conversations. An incredible time. While it was incredible, uh, there was also a very dark side to what I experienced over the last few days. And for a moment, I'm going to sound like the old man, you know, oh, those kids at the concert. <laughs> but in reality, my soul was really troubled by what I saw. And I, I can't say it any other way than to say that it was a sense of anguish rising up inside of me for these young folks. The young girls that were coming, I can only say they were basically wearing nothing. Tens of thousands of young women wearing what would not be appropriate on most beaches in this country. The young men that I saw coming were staggering over each other, holding each other's arms and egging on the young women. And it was a scene of debauchery that was very hellish in my mind. And while we were there and having these amazing conversations, I was looking around and just thinking, these poor young women, and, and these foolish young men. And, and I, I don't know any other way to fix this other than to, to help them see Jesus because I know Jesus can solve that emptiness in their heart that's causing this. Trying to prove themselves, trying to satisfy, trying, trying to find some kind of sense of belonging. That's why they're behaving that way. Showing up, walking down the streets of Chicago with no clothes on, why? Because something inside of them longs to belong and to have acceptance with others. And, and secular society, after all the years of movements we've seen in this country, still tells them that's one way to get acceptance. Young men, here's how to get acceptance. Egg that on and drink a lot of beer. Now, it would be easy for us as a church this morning to point our fingers outwards at those young, foolish people over at Grant Park that way. Ah, that's the problem. But if we're honest, what they're doing is just a different variation on the same things everybody in this room does most of the time. It just looks a little different. Trying to fill the void inside that cries out for acceptance with any means necessary. Some of us compete and we win. And the reason we're driven by competition is because we have this need inside of us, this void inside of us that says we've gotta be accepted, we've gotta belong. Some of us make money, and we're driven to make more money, and the reason is is because if we can prove that we can make money, we can prove that we're acceptable. Some of us become leaders, and we strive to become leaders and to get more and more prestige in our spheres of influence. And the motivation for it is to prove that we belong. It's this insatiable hole that only gets bigger. The more leadership you step into, the deeper the hole gets. There's always another position to have. Some of us become the life of the party, some of us prove ourselves in our toughness. Some of us prove ourselves by our niceness. All of these things. 
While not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, when you look at the motivation of why do we behave the way we do, so much of our day-to-day is driven by this insatiable hole inside of us that cries out to be fully accepted. And the reason we're doing the things and the reason we're spending the time and motivated to pursue the things we do with our time, if you really boil it down, if you had God's vision over the human heart to scan what's actually happening in here right now, it's this deep desire to belong and to find that someone else approves of you and someone else says, That's good. Today, we're going to be studying these three back-to-back passages in Acts chapter 16. We're taking the first one, uh, the first of the three back-to-back passages, but there's, in Acts chapter 16, there's three back-to-back-to-back conversion stories in the book of Acts. Now, remember, the book of Acts is like the history of the New Testament church. Jesus ascends into heaven, Uh, right in the first chapter, tells his apostles, go out, make disciples of all nations. And then the book of Acts is the story of Christianity growing and blossoming throughout the Mediterranean. And it's how that took place. And in Acts chapter 16, we get across the Asian Sea into what is now Europe. and, And we begin to see people come into contact with Jesus and have their lives transformed. And it's three stories, back to back to back. The first two stories are two women. The first woman we're going to study today is a woman named Lydia. And then next week, we're going to study a young woman who was enslaved. The closest thing for next week's passage that we have in our modern day in the American mindset would be something like sex slavery, a young woman caught into that. And today, we meet Lydia, who is this very successful businesswoman. Next week, we meet a young woman caught in human trafficking. And what we're going to find is that these two women, though unbelievably different in terms of how you would see them from an earthly perspective, both of them suffered from the same problem. And there was only one solution to solve the problem of both of their hearts. It was Jesus. Jesus was the only thing that could fix them. The conversion of Lydia and the conversion of the young woman stuck in slavery, both of them needed something only Christ could provide. It just looked different on the outside of their life. They could not be any different except for this one thing. They both needed salvation in Christ. And so today we're going to open up and learn about Lydia, a powerful testimony of a very powerful woman. So if if you have your Bibles, go ahead, open up Acts chapter 16, I'm going to start in verses 11, a few verses today, verses 11 through 15. I'll read to us the whole passage. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The conversion story of Lydia. 
First, let's talk about the, sitting, the setting. Paul, at this point, is on his second missionary journey. If we kind of back, back up a little bit, look at the whole book of Acts, what's happening. The apostle Paul had his big conversion story, and now he's a missionary. He's got a team with him. He's done one full loop across the Middle East, and now his second big missionary journey, he's doing another loop to, through those old Middle Eastern and kind of Asia Minor. And now, in Acts chapter 15, that was last week, God says, I want you to cross over the Asian Sea into what is now Europe. And so Paul, really having no idea where he's going other than God told him to go into Europe, he gets on a boat and he goes across into uh, what is, what's called the Mas- into Macedonia. And in verse 11, we read this really interesting little verse. We might miss actually some of the depth of this. It says, setting sail from Tro- Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Now, that language made a direct voyage. It's actually a nautical technical term. It's one word in the Greek in the original manuscripts, and it's used by mariners to describe what happens when the wind is perfectly blowing you in the direction you want to go. They made a direct voyage. The wind was perfectly at their backs, and they just, comp- they just went full steam ahead to their direction. What that verse is indicating, what the original readers in the Greek would have seen very clearly, is that God was clearly opening the way for them to move forward. What had happened? Paul had a vision from God. God said to him in Acts chapter 15, I want you to go to Europe, Paul. I know that wasn't your plan, but go across the sea and get to Macedonia. I have work for you there. So Paul gets on a boat, and all of a sudden, a wind is perfectly at his back, blowing him in the direction he needs to go. When you find yourself doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way, the wind will blow at your back. And one of the challenges I have for us as a church is two things. Number one, sometimes I think that we don't actually spend the time to actually listen and have a relationship with God to the degree that we might actually hear what God is instructing us to do. Some of us have never been instructed on how to hear from God. We've gone our whole life with the title Christian, and we didn't realize this is actually a relationship with a living God who communicates to us, but God's inviting us into the quiet place to sit before him, and he's got a plan for our life to direct our voyage. See, God didn't just speak to Paul and tell him to go across the sea to Macedonia. That's what happens to Christians. Christians enter into prayer with God, and they hold their entire life open, and they say, God, here's the plans I was making for my life. What does Proverbs 16, verse 9 say? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God, here's the plans I'm making, but Lord, this is your life. My life's on loan. So if you're directing my steps elsewhere, would you, would you reveal that to me? That's what Paul did, and that's what Christians do. Sometimes I wonder if we actually are trained and are actually taking the time to hold our life with open hands and say, is this really your plan? And then to listen long enough to hear him say, actually, it's not my plan. I need you to go to Macedonia. I've got some work for you to do. The first thing I'm concerned about is that most of us don't listen long enough to ask the Lord if he's actually calling us. The second thing I'm concerned about is whether or not we know how to hear his voice. Hearing the shepherd's voice is a sign that you are a sheep in the shepherd's flock. If your Christianity is abstract ideas, abstract rules, abstract places you're supposed to be, and there's no relationship with a living God who invites you into real relationship with him, who communicates to you and and directs your steps, and and sometimes you're doing ministry, and the wind is blowing at your back, and you're saying, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I know it's difficult. 
but the wind's at my back right now. If that never is taking place, I'm wondering if you've read the same Bible I've read. It seems to be the norm for regular Christianity. Paul arrives across the Asian Sea. He gets to Macedonia. This is where uh, God had called him into this large region. He doesn't quite know. Macedonia is a big region. It's like all of Southeast Europe in those days. He finally arrives at the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi is a very important city strategically to the Roman Empire. There's this gentle river that runs alongside about a mile outside the river. Today, that river is called the, I don't know how to say it. I think it's the Angites River. I don't know exactly how to say that. After three days in Philippi, it was the Sabbath, and Paul was eager to do what he had always done when he came to new cities. He would go into the city, and on the Sabbath day, he would go into the synagogues in the city where Jews, ethnic Jews, were gathered. And Paul had this mission to preach to the Gentiles, non-Jews. But whenever he would have first come to a new city, the first thing he'd do, he'd go to the synagogue, and he'd plead with them to see from their own scriptures that Jesus was their own Messiah. And he was very successful in going into these synagogues. And then once he had done the work in the synagogues, he would go to everyone else in the city and he'd proclaim, Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah, but he is a Messiah to anyone who will place their faith in him, no matter what background you come from. Sacred, secular, polytheistic, Greek religion, whatever your background is, Jesus is for you. First, he'd go to the synagogues. Well, there was a problem in Philippi. Philippi was very strongly a part of the Roman Empire. What we're going to learn about in Romans chapter 18, verse 2, is that the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews out of Rome. He expelled all of the Jews out of Rome. Now, we know that from the Bible. We also know that from secular history, from other manuscripts we have. This event took place. So once again, in terms of the validity of the Bible... We see the Bible as being verified by newer and newer archaeology all the time. The Jews were truly expelled out of Rome under Emperor Claudius. And Philippi, being a strong Roman province, strong Roman city, there were almost no Jews in the city. And so on this Sabbath, Paul wants to go to a synagogue like he would have done, but there was no synagogue. In Jewish law, to have a synagogue, you need at least 10 Jewish men. There were not 10 Jewish men in the city anymore. They had all been expelled. And so he gets wind, he hears that there's a group of Jewish women that are a remnant in the city of Philippi who are meeting along the river a mile outside of the city. And so he finds his way over there, and he finds these women who are praying. When he arrives, there's this group of women praying, and he comes to them, and one woman in particular stands out. Her name is Lydia. It's a powerful businesswoman. Lydia is the one who stands out from the group, and we know three things about Lydia from the text. First of all, she's from a city of Thyatira. Thyatira was across the Asian Sea. What this means is that she was very successful. Most people on that day, especially women in that day, would not have been afforded the opportunity to travel internationally. She, she was incredibly successful to be able to do this. Number two, she was a seller of purple. Purple was the finest dye in that day. We actually read this in other areas. Jesus, for example, when he was mocked and crucified, they put a purple robe on him because purple signified royalty. It was the most expensive dye you could get. In a, in a way, it was kind of like saying she sold Prada. I don't know, is that the most expensive stuff out there today? Right? It was the most expensive thing you could buy. And she was an international businesswoman. Thyatira was known for the purple dye that you could get there, and now she was selling all the way across the Mediterranean in Europe as well. She was a successful businesswoman with operations in Thyatira and Philippi. Not many men could claim that in that day, let alone women. Now, 
there's no mention of Lydia's husband. This is interesting. We're not quite sure what to make of Lydia's story. Most women would not have been single their entire life. More than likely, she was a widow at this point. Her husband may have passed away, or her husband may have divorced her and left her, which would have been very common in that day and age. Or her husband just wasn't in the scene. He could have been a very weak man, and she just was very strong in the faith, and she really is the person who is leading the way spiritually, and Paul was the one who was seeing Lydia there. More than likely, she was a widow. And here she is in a difficult situation, and she has developed or taken over a very successful business. We're told also that she was a pious woman. She was a worshiper of God, says the text. Now, what that means is that's the language for someone who is a proselyte to Judaism. More than likely, she came out of the polytheism, the secular worldview of the world she was living in, and she was seeking after God, and she became a type of proselyte, not necessarily adhering to all the Jewish laws of the day, not like kind of super conservative Jewish, but she would make her way around the synagogues if they were present, and she wanted to learn more about God. That's what that term worshiper of God would, would have meant. Lydia was a pious woman who was incredibly successful, who very clearly establishes herself as a leader among the other women in the group. I would venture to say that there's a lot of Lydia's in our city. Women who are strong businesswomen. Women who, from the outside, have life put together pretty well. You get a group of women together, this is the woman who's going to kind of stand out. She's successful. Our secular world has, has pushed this narrative very strong. Women, if you want to find your fullest identity, it's going to look kind of like Lydia. This is your fullest identity. It's something like Lydia. That's the best we got. Successful in business. Pious. While our modern-day piety doesn't quite look what, like what Lydia's piety looked like, there is a version of secular piety which is all the rave today. Pick up a cause. Put your name behind it. Make it your brand and make it your Facebook page. Secular piety. You want to be a successful woman? Successful man for that sake? Pick up a cause. This is what piety looks like. You'll have the piety area of your life taken care of. If you can just put these initials by your name, this cause by your name, make it clear that this is what you stand for and where your money goes and the things you'll put on your Facebook page, you will be considered pious in this day and age. You've got your life together. New modern piety. The problem with this is, is that inside there's this insatiable, nagging sensation that this is still not satisfying the void inside. Lydia's got it all. And yet she's showing up, and she's the first one to listen, the first one to open her ears to someone who's coming along preaching new insights about the God of the Bible. What that indicates is that even though she had it all in the eyes of the world, even though Lydia's in our secular society technically have it all in the eyes of the world, and they have achieved that everything that everyone's been saying that they should ch chase after, deep inside there is this nagging feeling, it doesn't satisfy. I'm still striving. I'm still not content. 
I still wake up every morning trying to appease others. I still wake up longing for the satisfaction of other people's approval, yet I'm doing everything the world told me I should do. Doesn't quite satisfy. I believe there's a lot of Lydia's possibly in this room today. No amount of piety can make them right with God. There's no amount of standing up for the right cause that can please God. Along comes Paul, and Paul steps into this small group of women, and he begins to preach to them the gospel. She was a worshiper of God. She was a proselyte to Judaism. She was not yet right with God. Piety does not make you right with God, says Paul. This is all of Paul's teaching, all through the New Testament. He doesn't tell us what his exact message was he gave, but he preaches the same message all through the New Testament. Piety won't save you, and piety won't make you right with God. You can say all the prayers in the world, but if they're aimed at the wrong God, they're not received by God. There is one God. There's salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. And, and, and here's what he preached to Lydia that day. He said, Lydia, you were made to have one thing true of you above all other things, that you would know the true and living God who formed you, knows you, knows the hair on your head, knows everything you've ever been through in life. He knows your story. He knows what it was like when you became a widow and the challenges you faced in this first century world, being a widow, trying to prove herself as a woman in the first century as a successful woman. He knows how difficult that was. He knows everything you've been through. He knows how you fought. He knows how you woke up every day to achieve. He knows how you established yourself as a leader among the women here at the bank of this river. He knows your piety. He knows your heart. He knows everything everyone has ever said about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he even knows your sin. He's seen it all. He's seen what you've contributed personally to the scars in this world. And here's what he did for your brokenness. The one thing that must be true of you to satisfy that void in your heart, Lydia, You've got to look to Jesus. Jesus is not just a martyr who died on a cross for religious belief. He took the judgment of God on his shoulders that you earned as a result of your sin, Lydia. And the reason you feel this nagging void in your heart is for one reason. Because you don't know God as he truly is. But if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, God will satisfy that void inside of your heart. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul is speaking to Christians. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1, 13. What that means is that until you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one true and saving person on this planet, no other God will save. Until you've made that decision in your life, Paul says you're in a domain of darkness. What does that mean? It means you're out of relationship with God and there's a nagging thing in your heart that knows you're not right. But once you place your faith in Jesus, something new happens. The void gets filled in a way that everything else in this world can never have satisfied. Ephesians chapter two, verses one and three says this, we were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's spiritually dead before God. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is very difficult for modern ears to hear. It would have been very difficult for Lydia to hear because she was a very pious woman. We don't like to hear that there is a problem with the human heart. 
our secular world has adopted a new philosophy, and I'm gonna transport us from first century and the cultural issues he would have been having trying to preach to Lydia, and now I'm gonna speak to the Lydias of our day and age today because there is a new ideology And the new ideology that our secular world is believing that is driving those who work downtown to ongoing trying to satisfy the the void in their heart through success is built off of a new ideology that says that the problem is not in you, the problem is your circumstances. You are morally pure, says the world around us. And if you want to find the truest you You have to look inside and and fling off every bit of the chains of secular society and the problems and the pressures because what is happening is secular society is putting these on you. The world and religious is putting this on you. And if you can just cling that off, you can find your true self. You heard this language, your true self? And if you can just meditate more, And if you can tap into your inner being, you will figure out who you really are. Because at your core, who you really are is what's most important inside of this. This philosophy started back with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Those of you who like philosophy, he coined a term. He said this, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. You know what that means? It means this, when you're born, says Rousseau, you're born morally perfect, But from the moment you're born, society around you is putting all this evil on top of you. And it's the evil around you that makes you bad. And so if you can just tap back into that, almost that infantile place of your true self, you can be happy. That's the promises of the world. We can go through issue after issue after issue. And what does every issue say? Find your true self. The problem is not in here. The problem is out there. Paul comes into Lydia and says, that is a lie. You can chase after your inner self all day long and all you will find at the end of that road is a hole that still is left longing to be filled by something. And the only thing that can satisfy that hole in the human heart is the God of the Bible who says he knows you, he sent his son to the cross for you, and if you will place your faith in Jesus, he will adopt you into his family. Listen to Romans chapter eight. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear once you place your faith in Jesus. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's identity language. Abba Father was the way a child would call out daddy in first century. Paul says when you place your faith in in Jesus, God now looks down at you and says, that longing is filled because I approve of you now because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. There's no more chasing. You, You can't chase anymore. No matter how much piety you add to your life, it's done. I approve because of Jesus. So stop chasing. See, once you know you've been adopted into the family, the wound is filled. You don't need to chase after anything more because you're satisfied. Now you operate out of a place of being fully known and fully loved despite your weakness. So you go into a world around you and you don't need to chase anymore because God looks down on you and says, fully approved in Jesus Christ. Void, filled, now go live. You want to see someone who's changing a city? You want to see someone who actually is salt in their workplace? Show me a person who understands Romans chapter 8, who cries out, Abba, Father, I've been adopted into the family of God because of Jesus Christ. That's a person who's going to change people's lives around them. That's a person who's a shaker. Until then, until you understand that, 
You can be as successful as Lydia, and you're gonna find yourself on the side of a river trying to listen to anyone who will tell you about God. Now, that's the good news of the gospel. I want you to look at verse 15, what happens here. Verse 15 is fascinating. Chapter 16, verse 15, Lydia's listening to Paul, and then verse 15 says, or 14 says, one who heard was named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What's the process of a person moving from not believing and not understanding to believing and understanding? Lydia had a very active responsibility to play in this. She had a real will. She was there. She was at the river. In some ways, we could say she was doing the things that would indicate from the outside that she was seeking after God. And yet, what happens? It's the Lord who opened her heart to understand the things of God. Until God taps your heart, brings you into the right place to hear the right word at the right time when you need it and unlocks your heart and makes your heart capable of hearing the message of God, you only have what Scripture calls a heart of stone. But then God changes your heart and makes you capable of hearing. Listen to John chapter 6. Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Jesus unless the Lord draws him. See, there might be some of you in this room today who don't even know how you got in this room today. But you're here, and you're reading the text with me, and you're understanding the way God works, and what's happening in this moment is that the Lord is opening your heart to receive the gospel of truth because he's a real God with real power who speaks to the depth of the heart. Pastor John Piper in his book, Providence, speaks about how this process works of conversion. And he talks about God's responsibility and our responsibility. He has this beautiful way of saying it. He says this, we are not passive in the process of our salvation, but what we learn from scripture is that our doing is the action of a miracle of which God is the decisive cause. At the pivotal moments of human willing, when a person passes from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, we just read that verse, when inclinations hold sway to persevere in faith, when good motivation triumphs in the pursuit of holiness, at those pivotal moments, God is the decisive cause of the conversion, the perseverance, and the holiness. Two thoughts for you reflecting on this. If you're a Christian in this room today, understanding the way God got a hold of your heart and opened your heart despite your callousness, despite your sin, and despite your running in the opposite direction. That's my story, and that's your story, and we all have the scars to prove that story is true. You know it, and I know it, if you really ask about our stories. Despite that, God got a hold of you when you were running away from him, and he changed everything about you. And what that ought to form in a person is this severe sense of humility that says, I, I can't understand why God would rescue me from that never-ending chase of success, never-ending chase of approval, why he would graft me into his family and adopt me as a child. But I receive it humbly, and I want nothing more than to please the king who loves me. That's what ought to be formed in you when you read that. And if you're in this room today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I beg you not to leave this place without making that decision the way Lydia did, to say, God, you're softening my heart right now, 
And I don't want to let one moment go any further before I make the decision Lydia did on that morning sitting by that river. Now, I want to have one more word here, looking at the end of this passage. Very important one. I think there's a lot of confusion around this in our, in our day, in the church especially. Verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, two things happen here. Number one, she's baptized. Number two, she shows hospitality to guests. Christians ought to be the best people in the city who show hospitality. There should be no one who outdoes us in showing hospitality and opening your homes to people. Nobody should outdo us. We're Christians. God has shown hospitality to us. The, the patterning in Christianity is that we now show hospitality to others, whoever they are, and we help them find Christ by opening our homes. There's something else here, though. She was baptized, her and her household. And I want to have a moment to just teach on baptism. Baptism is a sacrament. And what we mean by sacrament is it's something that Jesus commanded us to participate in. When did he command us that? In the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, he said this, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an outward display of an inward work of faith. Baptism does not save you. There's no actual cleansing that takes place in the act of baptism. Baptism is not the ceremonial rite where before you went into the waters, you were in one position with God, and then you came out of the waters, and all of a sudden you're in a new position with God. That moment happens the moment you place your faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 declare that very clearly. With the heart one believes and is saved, with the, one, with the mouth one is justified. It's when you believe in Jesus Christ that you move from being an enemy of God to a child of God. Baptism is a step of obedience where you then go under the waters and the waters of baptism signify to you and to everyone around you that this is someone who has their life changed by Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at this passage, one of the reasons this is controversial, it says she was baptized and her whole household as well. Now, some people have used this passage to make a case for infant baptism. Many of you have only ever gone through infant baptism in this room, and I'd like to make the case today that that's wrong, that actually what everyone should be doing if you're a Christian is after you've placed your faith in Jesus, it's then and only then that you go through the act of baptism. Let me give you three reasons why. Those who believe in infant baptism, they come to this passage and they say, well, she had her whole household baptized. There must have been infants in the, in the, in the household who were baptized as well. What I would say is that's a completely arbitrary claim. There, if you want to make the claim there must have been infants in the household, you can just as likely make the arbitrary claim that there were no infants in the household. It's just an arbitrary argument from silence. We don't know. So rather than looking to this and reading into the text that there must have been infants, we look to the other places of Scripture and the clarity to understand who should be baptized. Number two, argument number two. Every example, and there's many of them, dozens of them in the scriptures, of someone who gets baptized is only a believer. A hundred percent of the baptisms in the Bible are people who have put their faith in Jesus and then gotten baptized as an example and as a sign and a seal of what's happened in their life through faith. Uh, the flip side of that is there are no examples in the Bible of an infant being baptized. Thirdly, and finally, what is the meaning of baptism? 
it doesn't make sense to baptize infants because of what baptism means and signifies. When you go under the water, there's all types of things that are being signified. Romans chapter 6 says that baptism symbolizes when you pass from death to life. When you go under the water, it's kind of like you're showing, like, this is what happened to me. I was dead, and then I came alive when you come out of the water. That's the symbolic gesture of it, says Romans 6. Well, that doesn't make sense for an infant because they have yet to experience that through placing their faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that baptism symbolizes being cleansed by Christ. The water, in a sense, symbolizing that cleansing effect. Again, that wouldn't make sense for someone who's yet to be cleansed. 1 Peter chapter 3 says that baptism symbolizes having passed through the judgment of God safely. Once again, that only makes sense for someone who actually has placed their faith in Jesus because the judgment no longer falls on your own shoulders, but it falls on Jesus' shoulders. Here's the case I'm making. In a few weeks, on August 29th, we're going to have a baptism service in the beach at 31st Street Beach. Our church, Park South Loop and Park Bridgeport in Bridgeport, are going to do one joint service together at the beach. And we're going to baptize folks in Lake Michigan. Every year we do this, it's one of the sweetest experiences of my life to stand in a public beach in Chicago. Some years we've had upwards of 100 folks getting baptized. I think last year we had 140. And that was from all park locations. So this is just between us and Bridgeport. It's a little bit smaller this year, but we're going to be at the beach. And I believe there are many here in this room who have never been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you. Lydia did not wait. She believed, and she and her household were baptized. She went home. She told everyone who worked for her, everyone in her household, you need to believe in Jesus, and let's baptize everybody today. And they all got baptized right then and there. And I want to challenge you to get baptized in obedience to Christ and in celebration with your church family. Now, if that is you, and if the Lord is stirring in you, I'm going to be teaching a baptism class next Sunday where I will teach much more on this topic. Again, next Sunday, we're going to be meeting a park near north. The baptism class will be at 3 o'clock in that building. Come be a part of that if you want to learn more or if you want to participate in that baptism, okay? How do I close this? Church, I started today's message by sharing my anguish over what I saw at Lollapalooza this last week. And truly, the word anguish is the right way to describe it. That brokenness and the brokenness that we sometimes slip into, even as Christians, is satisfied in one place. That's it. There's only one thing. You behold Christ Jesus. You lift him up in your life. You make him the king. And, and you say, I'm done. I repent. I've made the same mistakes too many times and the same scars and the same wounds. They're just always there. And you're worthy of it all. And I believe it. I believe that you are the king and I'm giving my whole life to follow you. And what happens when you, you place him on that throne, he begins to do a work in your heart that satisfies that wound so deeply and confidently that everyone around you sees the change. I invite you into that this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. Sometimes, Lord, we look to Scripture, and even in five, six short verses, there's so much to learn. I think it was Augustine who said, Scripture is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, yet shallow enough for a child to wade in. 
There's something for everything, for everybody in here, Lord. And, and today, God, I, I believe that even the most mature of Christians in this room needs to be reminded from Lydia that there's only one thing that satisfies the needs to belong in our soul, and that's Christ Jesus. God, I pray right now in this moment across this room, Holy Spirit, that you would be moving in a way that only you can move, far beyond the words of a preacher. God, I pray that hearts would be testing this right now. Spirit, would you actually move in hearts? New life, I pray. New life, I pray. Power, I pray, in people's hearts, that they would experience something they'd never seen or felt before, the power of the Holy Spirit melting the hardest heart, changing us, making us new in Christ. I pray there be baptisms in a month from now in the lake because people had their hearts changed today in this room. Lord, have your way with us. You are the King. In Jesus' name.